Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, hope you had a good weekend and welcome back to Fruit Snacks. This week and next week, I believe we're going to be covering the topic of my uh, master's thesis, which was, will there be free will in heaven? And if so, what exactly does that look like and and how could that even work? Now, I want to just take one episode here to basically lay some foundation and, and set the table, if you will, because one of the initial questions that can come up, and I totally get this question is, does this even matter? Is this even a topic that we should care about? Because it doesn't seem like the Bible really tells us that we will or won't. And after all, once we're in heaven, are we even going to care about stuff like this at all? Or will we just be happy to be there? And to a certain extent, I understand that objection. But I would just say that, first of all, When it comes to topics like this one, where the Bible isn't explicit in just telling us this is how it's going to be, I think we should care for a couple reasons. And one is that how we answer a question like this gets at the kind of being that we believe God to be. And depending on how we answer, you can conceive of in your mind a very different kind of God, whether that's a God who gets what he wants because he forces everyone to do exactly what he wants, or whether he's a God who accommodates human choices and is still able to get what he wants. That's a different kind of God, and that's someone with different character traits. And so when it comes to how we think about who God is, I would argue that we should do everything within our power to think as accurately, as biblically about who God is as we possibly can. So that when we think about God, even though we will never be able to think about God as closely as God thinks about himself, we'll never know God fully, we should strive to think about God as closely to who he actually is as we possibly can. And so it goes to questions like this where we need to stop and consider what kind of being do we think God actually is and what do we base that on? Do we base that on just our own intuition, what seems right or plausible to us? Are we basing that on scripture? Where Where is this coming from. And to that point, I would also just say that when I started doing research on this topic of whether or not we will have free will in heaven and how that could work and what that might look like, I was shocked in all the sources that I looked at and articles that I read, which to be honest, there aren't that many that have been written, but there are some, maybe about half a dozen or so in scholarly uh, journals. I was amazed at how few of them incorporated any scripture whatsoever. Some of them use no scripture at all to make their arguments. 
and others begin with a handful of scriptures and then very quickly abandon scripture and sort of move beyond to basically philosophical arguments. And I don't know about you, but that really bothered me because I don't really care personally how much philosophical or logical sense an argument makes about God if it can't be squared with scripture then we should just abandon it. And so I'm not really interested in the answer to this question from a philosophical perspective. I want to know if the Bible gives us enough information that we can come to a conclusion about this or not. And I also want to to make a case that I think can rest very squarely on a scriptural foundation, not just a philosophical or a logical one. And so that's what I set out to do. Now, moving into sort of the the meat of the issue at hand, basically, when we're talking about this idea of whether or not there will be free will in heaven, we're, we're dealing with, if you've ever uh, read or written or constructed a logical argument before, you understand this idea of you have premises, which need to be supported by some sort of evidence or underlying reasons if we're going to accept them. And then the argument is constructed in such a way where if all the premises are true, the conclusion follows inescapably from it. So really in this argument or this question of whether there will be free will in heaven, and when I say argument, I mean in the logical sense, there are really just two premises. The first premise is that heaven will be a place where there is no sin. And the second premise is that the redeemed have free will in heaven. Now, while both of those premises seem to be ones that most people would accept on their own, as soon as you put them together, people start to feel a tension there because, and I think rightly so, we sort of have this intuition that this could be a bit of a paradox. How is it that heaven will be a place where there's no sin and people will be free when we know that people in the past like Adam and Eve, have freely chosen to sin when I know that I, in the past, have freely chosen to sin. And then what do we do with the theology of the devil and his fall? Didn't he sin in heaven? So we're going to talk about all these things, but first I want to give you some underlying scriptural support for why we should accept both of these premises as true before we ever go any further. Because if we can't support either of these biblically, then we're not even getting off the ground here. So the first thing I want to do is to give you a couple verses to consider with regard to this first premise that heaven is a place where there is no sin. Now we're going to jump right in in the book of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22 specifically. But in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, which is part of what I referenced in last week's episodes about heaven, It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So what I want us to notice in this passage is that John is clearly stating that there will no longer be any death in heaven. And I want us to keep that in mind as we look at another passage like James chapter 1, verse 15, 
where James is writing about the so-called life cycle of sin. And he writes this, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So what we see is that lust, sin, and death are linked together by James in this sort of cause and effect relationship. And then if we hop over to Paul's teaching in Romans 5 verse 12, Paul says that sin entered into the world and death through sin. So Paul sees a very similar kind of relationship to what James says in chapter 1 verse 15 of his book. So if we take all this together, we should be able to, I think, reasonably conclude a couple of things. First, that sin is inextricably bound up together with death because sin leads to death. Paul says in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin is death. Second, if death is basically declared dead in Revelation, if there will be no more death, then it stands to reason, I think pretty, pretty readily, that the cause of death, which is sin, is also necessarily excluded from the new creation. If death will never again occur, then the thing that brings death will likewise never again occur. And this leads to the conclusion that if death won't be in heaven or the new creation, then neither will sin. And Paul basically says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 54 through 56, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. With Christ's victory over death, its sting or sin is also basically, it's gone, it's nullified. And then one more I want us to look at in Revelation, back to Revelation 21, 27, and then in Revelation 22, 3, it says that nothing detestable, false, or accursed will enter heaven. And sin absolutely falls into these categories. And I'm not just saying that because we can sort of stretch it and say, well, sin is all these things. Sin is specifically associated with all of these things in different passages in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 18, sin is correlated with detestable things. It is also tied to cords of falsehood in Isaiah 5, 18. And so that would obviously check the, the box of false things. And then sin is also associated with a curse throughout Genesis 3 and Galatians 3, which we should be familiar with as far as the, the story of the garden there. And so we can say that if these things, detestable things, false things, and accursed things will not be in heaven, sin is all of those things, uh, specifically by name in the Bible. So I think we can make a very strong case from Scripture that there will be no sin in heaven, ever. So what about our second premise, that the redeemed will have free will in heaven? Well, we can look at some other passages, I think, that support this quite well. If we go to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, we read this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. And then over in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 through 32, we see something similar with Ezekiel saying, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent 
and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not be a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. So we see in both of these passages that it seems that Israel has moral accountability before God and that God is asking them, he is seemingly pleading with them to choose to repent, which again strongly implies that Israel's transgressions were freely chosen in the first place. And so therefore God is morally justified in condemning them for their wickedness and saying, listen, you need to make this choice to turn back to me. And if you don't, then I will have no choice but to judge you, to punish you. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, we see another example. It says this, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So if you're not familiar with the context of this passage, God is responding to Eli, uh, who was one of the uh, priests of God, and he changes his response to Eli and what Eli's family legacy is basically going to be because Eli's wicked sons have fallen into disobedience. And so their sinful actions prompted a different response from God. And again, if we're just sort of following the way that we normally would think about these things, think about it as a parent, think about it as a friend or a teacher, if those actions by Eli's sons hadn't been freely chosen, and it makes very little sense why God would punish the house of Eli based upon things that were determined to happen, if they could not do otherwise, then first of all, why is God... Why is God changing his response? And then why is God punishing them? Why is God justified in punishing them in the first place? And there are more passages like this throughout the Old Testament that basically just state outright or imply that while God does desire certain actions from humans, that he has decided in his wisdom to leave it up to us whether or not we actually choose to do those actions. Now, in the New Testament, we would see something similar where, just like with Israel, Paul is exhorting Christians in Galatians 5.13 when he writes, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So Paul seems to be operating from this understanding that the capacity for righteous living is within the ability of the Galatians to, to choose, but it's up to them to choose it. And then in 1 Corinthians 15.34, Paul also writes, Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. He just says, stop sinning, Corinthians. Again, as if it's in their power to just choose to stop sinning. And Paul believes that, that it is, that they can make that choice, that with the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they can simply choose to stop sinning. They are no longer enslaved to it. And in 1 Corinthians 10.13, which is a very famous passage, we read, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you will be able to endure it. And I think if we take a passage like this at face value, 
it would indicate to us that even when believers succumb to temptation, there are always means of escape provided by God. In other words, Christians who sin could have done otherwise and are therefore responsible before God for their sinful actions uh, when they choose not, not to listen to the way of escape or take the way of escape and they choose to sin instead. So I think that we have more than enough scriptural warrant here for accepting that both of these premises initially are biblical. They're both true. So then the question becomes, how then do we square them? How do we harmonize them? And that's where we're going to focus the rest of this week is different ways that we can look at or attempt to look at how do we square these two ideas that both seem to be biblical. And there are some attempts that have been made that I think fail uh, pretty spectacularly sometimes. And so we're going to look at those and then we're going to turn our attention afterwards to an attempt that I think succeeds. Uh, one that I think does make the best sense with, uh, with few if no compromises in what the Bible actually says and seems to teach. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at failed attempts first and then why they fail. We're going to critique those. And then moving into next week, we're going to uh, switch and take a look at, I think, what does work and, and then where do we go? Where do we go from here uh, as well? So I hope that you will join me. We've got a lot to cover this week and I can't wait to dive in with you. This is a really, really fascinating topic. 